Great to be with you all this morning. My name is Rob. I'm one of our teachers along with Lloyd Shadrach. And uh, I don't know why everyone's coming up to me today asking how am I doing. I'm doing just fine. Thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm actually really grateful to be here today focusing on something that really matters. <laughs> unlike, Amen. Amen. unlike what I was focusing on yesterday afternoon from about 3 to 6.30 p.m. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm going to leave it that way because you don't know, need to know what I'm talking about. I'm going to keep moving right along. We are, uh, we're in a new series called The Songs of Advent. And if you'll go ahead and open your Bible to the passage that was just read, it's in, it's in Luke chapter one. And we're gonna look at the song of Mary this morning. So here's what we're doing. Uh, it's interesting how much we associate Christmas with music. And I've been thinking about why is that? I think there's probably a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is there are songs all throughout the biblical account of the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're gonna look at four of these songs in this series. The Song of Isaiah, which was last week. Today's the Song of Mary. We're gonna look at the Song of Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist. And then we'll look at the Song of the Angels that they uh, proclaimed at Jesus' birth. So let's talk briefly about last week. If you missed it, Lloyd taught on the Song of Isaiah. Coming out of Isaiah chapter nine, he did some really Really good job with historical context of what was going on in that well-known passage. This is the, uh, for unto us a child will be born, unto us a son will be given, etc. Now, 700 years before Christ is when that passage was written. Israel had a choice in that moment. They could either put their hope for salvation in a great powerful army, the, the nation that was going to align themselves with Israel in order to kill the enemies and de de defeat them and you know, send them away, or they could put their hope in a promise that God said of a little baby that's going to be born that would be the future king of Israel. And sadly, Israel put their hope in you know, curtain number, curtain A, which was uh, the, the Assyrian army that they aligned themselves with and it ended up being their undoing. It was temporary salvation and it was long-term misery. Now fast forward 700 years, we're now at the moment just before Christ was born and, it, and God's been silent for the most part of that time. There's been about a 400 year gap, year gap where Israel did not hear from a prophet. And they must have been wondering at that point in time, what's going on? Historically, here's what's happening. This is right around, you know, zero uh, AD, somewhere thereabouts. Uh, Israel was a doormat for the uh, Roman Empire. Israel had a puppet Jewish king named Herod. He had no real political power. He was under the th thumb of the Romans. Herod himself was brutal. He was selfish. He was not a God-fearer. He was conniving. Where was God. Where was the promise that God had said about the baby that was to be born, that was going to rescue Israel from its enemies, that was going to turn Israel's, you know, fortunes upside down? Where was he? And then, most unexpectedly, an angel appeared to a young teenage girl, a Jewish girl living in a town of Nazareth, and he tells her that she's going to miraculously conceive give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. You can just imagine what was going through her mind. We actually don't have to imagine because we get to read it in the text. And, and what happened is after the angel appears to Mary, Mary, you know, the end of that, she says, you know, let it be according to what you have said. And then she immediately goes off and visits 
Elizabeth, who was one of her relatives, and the angel had said, even Elizabeth in her old age is now with child. Mary goes to Elizabeth for a couple of reasons. Number one, just to sort of have some shared experience, commonality, maybe some comfort from her relative. But number two, she's gonna verify what the angel had said. And she gets to Elizabeth, she finds Elizabeth pregnant. Elizabeth confirms everything that the angel had told Mary. And it's at that point in time that I think all the emotion that was inside Mary bubbles out and, and she just sort of like comes out with this song. Now, how do we know it was a song? Well, it's poetic. You know, it's clearly meant to be Hebrew poetry. Um, in fact, it, it's really a psalm. It looks a lot like the Old Testament Psalms. There's, this is one of only a very few New Testament Psalms, and it happens to be written here by Mary. I think we really need this particular Christmas song, and I want to tell you why. Mary gets the big idea of Christmas in a way that we tend to miss. Now, you might be thinking, well, of course she gets the big idea of Christmas. Like, you know, she was pregnant with, the, with Jesus, you know. I don't mean that. I mean, from a theological perspective, there's something that Mary immediately grasps, the theological significance of Christmas that you and I miss. And I'm not talking about, you know, well, the reason for the season is Jesus, et cetera, and we're, we're about Santa Claus instead of Jesus. That's not where I'm going with this message. There's something a little bit deeper than that, even for those of us that think we know a lot about Christmas, a lot about Jesus. Um, have you ever had something happen to you or some news that you heard that was so unexpectedly good that it, you just spontaneously shouted? Or, you know, I spontaneously gave a high five or a hug, you know? Um, you know, I, for me, I think about moments in life that like, you think things are going down and then all of a sudden something happens. This is what happens to Mary. And it's not just good news for her. She's seeing it in the context of her nation, the nation of Israel, and of the entire creation. And the news as it soaks in is so good that she erupts in this magnificent song. It's actually called the Magnificat. Not because it was magnificent, but because of the Latin translation and, and the way this is translated in the Latin, the first word is magnify. You know, in, in our scripture that was read, it's, it's the word exalt, but it's that same idea, right? And so if you've ever, you know, heard this performed as a piece or you've heard it referred to, this song of Mary is called the Magnificat. And I think Mary's song not only helps us understand the Christmas event better, but I think her song helps us understand how we should sing about the Christmas event. And we'll talk about that as we go. Uh, her song is theologically rich and thematically stark. Now, what do I mean by that thematically stark? Uh, it's not what we typically associate with Christmas songs. It's not about chestnuts and, and hot cocoa and such. It's actually about social revolution. It, that's what this song is about. And it's probably why there aren't more modern Christmas songs based in this text. <laughs> but you're actually going to hear a beautiful new one today at the end of the message. Let's jump into the text. It kind of breaks out into three parts, so that's how we'll tackle it. First part is verse 46 to 49. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So here Mary introduces the theme of the whole song, and she does that by starting with her own story. Here's the theme, okay? The, the theme of this Magnificat is God 
turning the world upside down by lifting up those who are at the very bottom. That's the theme of the song. And Mary begins with her own story. So let's talk about Mary's story for a minute because she's going to take this theme of God lifting up those who are at the bottom and she's going to apply it first to herself, then the whole creation, the whole world, and then particularly to her nation of Israel. And those are the three sections if you're going to outline the, the, the song. That's how it will work. Let's talk about how this theme played out first in Mary's own life. From a cultural standpoint, Mary was at the bottom of the bottom. First of all, she was a Jew, okay? And in that day and age, the Jewish people were not well regarded. Right? They were looked at as just sort of those, those crazy folks. They didn't have a military. They didn't have a nation. They didn't have their own land. They were trusting in some ancient prophecy. They were few. They were scattered. Their, their, their primary glory days had been thousands of years ago, and they were mocked by many in that time. Not only was Mary a Jew, she lived in Galilee, you know, Galilee was like the, I don't know what we would, uh, the, the, the podunk part of the country, you know, the, those country bumpkins that come from Galilee and they had accents, you know, that kind of identified them as Galileans. Not only was she a Jew from Galilee, she was from Nazareth. Okay, there was literally a saying of that day that went something like this. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was thrown in Jesus' face later too, by the way. But she was a Jew in Galilee from Nazareth. She was poor. That meant she was, you know, economically on, on the bottom, but it also meant she was socially on the bottom. She was cast aside by society. She was even spiritually or religiously on the bottom from a sense. It was assumed by many in that day, non-biblically, by the way, but it was sort of the religious assumption that if you were poor, it meant that you were not favored by God. There was a reason that you were poor. There was a reason that you were hungry. And if you were rich, that meant you were favored by God. You were blessed by God. So think about from Mary's perspective, this poor you know, Jewish girl living in, in uh, Nazareth, the angel comes to her and says, the greeting that he says, this isn't in our text, but it's earlier in Luke 1. He says, greetings, favored one. And then immediately says, she puzzled about what kind of greeting is that? Who's gonna call her favored one? She wasn't, not in any way, shape, or form from her perspective. Not only was she a Jew in Galilee and Nazareth, poor, she was a woman. Let's just talk about that for a minute. We're not going to shy away from it. In, in that society, women had no rights. They had no voice. They were literally considered property. And she was right at the marrying age. Okay, we're going to learn she's betrothed to a man, but she's not yet married. So and from a woman's perspective, you're either attached to your father or you're attached to your husband. And that's standing in that society. And she was kind of like, you know, right in between that kind of position. And by the way, there were negotiations in these betrothals that involved property, it involved money, and, and these marriages were negotiated uh, from a wealth standpoint. Uh, she was treated essentially as property. Not only was she a woman, she was a teenage girl. She was young. So she was all these things. She was at the very bottom of society. Now let's talk about what God did. He placed himself inside of her. The second person of the Trinity he chose someone with no power, no voice, no standing to be the one who would be closest to the Son of God, humanly speaking, to be the one who would nurture, shield, protect, literally raise God, <laughs> raise the Messiah. And, and then through this song, he chose this one that had no voice to be the voice 
to be the first human voice to proclaim the good news about Jesus coming from Mary's lips. And we get to hear her actual words. You know, Luke doesn't say, you know, and then Mary sang a song and then go on to the next thing. No, we actually get the song. We get Mary's words. That makes her, in a sense, one of the authors of the scripture. We hear from her directly. The Spirit spoke through her and is still speaking through her words, teaching us even this morning. You see what God did? You know, turning upside down the, the cultural expectations for this teenage girl. By the way, and, and I want to say this and need to say this, she was an imperfect human in need of grace just like all of us, just like every human. We should not elevate Mary above that. We shouldn't pray to her. We shouldn't pray to any other human. That's not the pattern in the scripture. We pray to God alone. But the point here is that God did something remarkable. He did something surprising. He did something beautiful. He did something redemptive. He took an overlooked person, a poor Jewish teenage girl, and lifted her up, honored her above the wealthiest and most powerful people in the world at the time. And so Mary is responding to that reversal in her own story. Now let's look at how Mary's going to apply that same theme to the whole rest of creation. Look at verses 50 to 53. And his mercy is upon generation after generation to those who fear him. And he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Now, let me tell you what's going on here. Mary is actually using a lot of Old Testament quotations uh, in this text. You can look them up in your, your side notes that you may have in your Bible. She's carrying forward a key theme of the Old Testament prophets. And the key theme was this idea of God's going to turn the world upside down. And the things that are low, he's going to elevate. And the things that are high, he's going to bring down low. There's going to be this great reversal that is coming with the Jewish Messiah. Mary is using the past tense, probably using it as a prophetic past tense. Let's talk about that for just a minute. We don't do that in English today, but it was common in Hebrew. You see it all throughout the Old Testament prophets. They would use the, the, the aorist tense, which is how it's translated into Greek, but they would essentially use a verb tense that typically is translated past tense, but it hasn't happened yet. And they're essentially saying, this is so certain that it's going to happen that you can talk about it like it already has. This is this prophetic past tense that, that uh, Mary is talking about because she, nothing's been fulfilled yet. It's all in the future, yet she's talking about it with confidence. Uh, you see this theme of reversal in Mary's words on both sides, both sides. Not just the elevation of the humble, but the bringing down of the non-humble. She says it this way, he has brought down rulers and exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry and sent away the rich empty-handed. You see these contrasts here? Right? This is the upside-down kingdom that is coming. And think of it this way. This text is sort of a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It makes it a pretty important text. It's not the only bridge, but it's one of the bridges. The promises of something new emerging are finally beginning to be fulfilled in the coming of Messiah. The world is being turned upside down or maybe right side up, depending on how you look at it. 
And so I just want you to think about the significance of Mary's words as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is a sense that Mary is sort of standing at the hinge point of history itself. It's like all this, the way the world has worked for thousands of years is going to change and it's going to change because of Messiah. And I'm standing right here at the middle of this. It's happening. This is all embedded in this song. Um, this theme in Mary's song, interestingly, becomes the theme of Jesus' teaching. My, my brain's been going crazy this week thinking about what were the conversations like between the, the, the mother of Jesus and Jesus himself when he was 12 and 14 and 16 and 20 and, and 28. You know, all, all those years that she had with him before he started his ministry. They had to be talking about this kingdom. They had to be talking about this reversal that was coming. And so Jesus begins teaching his message. He says things like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, blessed are you when, when, when people ridicule you, right? For great is your reward that is coming. You see this theme of reversal. It's all throughout Jesus' teaching of the coming kingdom of God. Now, Mary has one more place to apply this theme. One more verse in her song, so to speak. And she's going to talk about her nation. She's going to talk about Israel. And she's going to go there because she realizes that not only is she at the hinge point of the story, but she's embedded in a broader narrative, the narrative of Israel itself. Think of it this way. Before Israel was a nation, it was a family, right? The, the, the family of Abraham. Before it was a family, it was just a man. And then it was a man and his wife who were barren. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have kids. And they were old. And God said, you're going to be a nation. And they believed him. You see, they put their hope in the promise, even though it seemed impossible. And Mary's identifying her own story with the origin story of the entire nation of Israel. You see, none of this is lost on her. She was sharp. By the way, she would have been uh, probably illiterate in that culture. She wouldn't have been educated. She wouldn't have been taught how to read Torah. She wouldn't have been taught how to write. She was listening. She knew a lot. She was a good theologian. She's putting all these pieces together here in her song. So let's look at the last two verses of this text. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Do you remember the promise of Abraham? Way back in Genesis, God said, I'm going to make you a great nation so that through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. This is happening. This is how it is happening, through this baby. Now, remember during the time of Mary, Israel was an overlooked footnote in history. From the world's perspective, the promises God made to Abraham were empty. They were shallow. Nothing had come of the nation of Israel. They didn't have land, power, military, government, freedom. They were just this little small group of crazy people clinging to a prophecy. And Mary is saying, our seemingly insignificant, seemingly no consequence nation is being lifted up from the bottom of society to be elevated, to be shown for what it actually is, the center of God's redemptive work on earth. Just like God had promised. 
the lowly is being lifted up. First, Mary herself. Secondly, a prophecy about the whole world that's going to be turned on its head. Lowly are going to take the places of the rulers. And then finally, this is a fulfillment of Israel itself being brought out of obscurity to fulfill what God had promised to it. That's Mary's song. Okay, that's this theme of reversal. That's the social revolution. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, it's not just a social revolution. Isn't it really mostly spiritual? You know, isn't it about sin and grace? Yes, the gospel is that and more and more. And in this particular text, the Holy Spirit is highlighting literal economic, literal social aspects of the kingdom of God that are all wrapped up in the gospel. And, and hope we'll tie the pieces together a little bit more in the end. So that's Mary's song. I want to dig a little bit deeper into the theology that undergirds it and what it means for us. All right, so you know, dig, dig a little more into it and then we're going to apply it. Uh, in that day, depending on where you existed in society, if you had heard these words of Mary, they either would have been the best possible news or the worst possible news. Do, do you see that? Like when you think about it from the, the standpoint of the text, and, and here's what would differentiate the two. If you were on the outside looking in, all right, the poor, the sick, the outcast, those without power and cultural influence. If you were on the outside looking in, the idea of God turning society on its head was fantastic. It's good news. But if you were on the inside looking out, if you were one of the ones with power and resources and cultural influence, uh, uh, the wealthy, anyone kind of on the top of society, this was anything but good news. In fact, it was threatening. And so it's no surprise that when Mary's son grows up, he starts preaching the idea of the kingdom and Jesus' words are remarkably closely aligned to Mary's words here. All right, he starts talking about the coming kingdom and the reversal and, you know, blessed are the poor. Really? Is that really true? What happens is you get two polar opposite responses to Jesus' message. You see this in the Gospels. I don't know if you've ever thought much about why did some people love him and why did some people want to kill him? It comes down to this. The poor, the lowly, those who are marginalized in their society, they received him and put their trust and their hope in him by and large. Why? Because they knew they needed help. They knew they needed a savior. They knew they needed rescue. On the other hand, those who were at the top of society, the wealthy, powerful, the cultural elite, they first tried to dismiss him. Then they tried to silence him when they couldn't do either of those things. They ultimately crushed him because they didn't want a savior. They didn't want rescue. Like, why do you want rescue when, when you're on the top? Right? I mean, we, we tend to just sort of spiritualize all this and say, well, they, they didn't understand their own sin. Yes, that's true. And it was economic and it was social and it was all these things. You, you can't get away from that in the scripture. So I'm not pitting one against the other. They're both here. Now, the news about an upside down kingdom is very threatening to those on top. And make no mistake, the followers of Jesus were fully expecting a social revolution with Jesus. And the enemies of Jesus took him serious about the kingdom of God, and that's why they killed him. Mary knew exactly where she was within the paradigm of the haves and the have-nots. She was a have-not. She was at the bottom. 
She was the lowest of the low. Think about how needy Mary was. She was materially needy. She was socially needy. She was, at least in the, the view of others around her, spiritually needy. And in her great need, she received the Savior with joy. That's the big idea of Christmas that Mary get, got that we tend to miss. And I want to say it again. In her great need, she received the Savior with joy because she knew she needed him. So now let's talk about us. Okay, fast forward 2,000 years later. We're in a very different context than Mary was. I think maybe our biggest problem today is we resist neediness at every front. To be needy in our day and time and culture is to be weak and to be broken. Nobody wants to be needy. Like you just ever been around needy people, you know, or you ever just said about other people, it's just like, oh man, I like him, but you know, he's just needy. You know, it's just sort of like cast aside those people that don't have it together, right? We've bought into the cultural idea that to be in need is to be wrong, to be broken, to be messed up, not to be whole in some way. In fact, and I, I just, I gotta say this boldly, I'm just teaching God's word what's right here in front of us. From a biblical perspective, the opposite's actually true. I'm not talking about being like emotionally unhealthy, you know? Uh, here, here's what I'm talking about. And from a biblical theological perspective, it's the ones who don't realize their need that are in danger. Okay, do you, you see that true? Old Testament, Gospels, New Testament epistles. It's the ones who don't realize their need that are at risk. Self-sufficiency, this is another way to say it that might kind of penetrate our hearts a little bit. Self-sufficiency is what keeps us from grace. It's the attitude that I don't need rescue. Not really. Not really. I don't need forgiveness. Not really. Not compared to a lot of other people around me. I don't need salvation. I mean, salvation from what? I don't need God. Not really. Now, maybe I'll add him to my uh, weekly calendar and, and it's good to be in church and it's good to be a Christian and it's good for my kids to be raised in the church, but I don't really desperately need him. I don't need any of those things to make me whole. I'm doing okay. Thank you very much. I want you to look again at verse 51 because I think this is a big problem for us. And you guys, I'm first in line. It's a problem for me. I want you to look again at verse 51. We'll put it on the screen. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. Guys, this is a penetrating verse. Here's why. She's no longer just talking about, you know, the rulers and those with all the money. And, you know, all of us, no matter how much money we have, we always say, well, I'm not the guy with all the money. The guy with all the money is, you know, up there somewhere. 
She's now going beyond that. And she's saying, those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. Now, isn't that interesting? The heart shows up again. It shows up everywhere in scripture, right? that's, That's why we've been talking about it so much. The heart is your core self. It's your inner person. It's who you really are. And so Mary's going after a heart. And this is a description of deep-seated independence and deep-seated self-sufficiency. And and I see this in me. Throughout the song, Mary is contrasting two kinds of people. She's essentially saying, when you dig into a person's heart, here's what you'll find there. You're either going to find pride and self-sufficiency, or you're going to find humility and need. There will either be room for God or there will not. Listen to Jesus' own words in Luke 14, verse 11. He talks about this all the time. He had just been talking about a man, actually, this is Luke 18. He's been talking about two people that are praying in the temple And one's this religious, like very well-behaved, good person in the society that was looked up to. And the other was a tax collector who was despised and sinful and and, and, and thought of as very lowly. And and the the guy that's so mighty and religious and good-looking, he just says, God, thank you that you've not made me like him. And the other one is just on his face. He's saying, God, I'm, I'm in so in need of rescue. Could you bring yourself low enough to save me? And Jesus says, it's this one over here that will go away forgiven today. And then he says this verse, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This week I read uh, an old sermon by Tim Keller who pastors a church in New York City and it's about 20 years old. He was commenting on this passage that we're studying. And he compared the grace of God coming to earth through Jesus. He compared that to a great wind suddenly blowing across an ocean. He said, if you're a good sailor and you know how to align yourself to the wind, it can whisk you off to your destination. But if you don't know how to align yourself to the wind, if you fight it or ignore it, the same wind can knock your boat over. It can drown you. It can push you into the rocks. He's saying Mary's proclamation is that the grace of God is blowing like a great wind. And if you meet it with humility in your heart, it will whisk you away into the arms of your Savior. But if you dig in, if you resist it, if you double down, on your independence, if you double down on your self-sufficiency, on your wealth for your security, on your goodness for your sense of security, if you fail to recognize your own need, if you fail to recognize all the ways that you're insufficient, all the ways that you are lowly, all the ways that you need to be lifted up, you'll be knocked over by the same grace. You'll be knocked over by the wind. I want to make this as practical as we possibly can because I feel the weight of this in my own heart. And I want to talk to two groups of people that are here today. And, and, and I'm not going to go down the, you know, the old preacher's path. of Let's talk about those of you that are saved and those of you that aren't saved. That's, I'm, I'm taking a different paradigm this time. Let's talk, first of all, I, I, I want to talk to those of you that are on the outside looking in. 
and I'll explain what I mean in a minute, but, but here's where I'm going with both of these groups. Um, one of the songs that you're gonna hear and sing over and over in the season goes like this. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Let every heart prepare him room. Have you ever thought about that line very much? Have you ever asked yourself, what would it look like for my heart to prepare him room? And I'm not just talking about the point of your salvation. We'll, we'll touch on that a bit in a minute. I'm talking about right now, 2018 Advent season. What would it look like for your heart to prepare him room? Now, with that in mind, let's talk about these two groups of people. First, for those of you on the outside looking in, in terms of our culture's power structures. I'm talking about those that feel marginalized somehow, those that are down low, those that maybe are just barely making it, those that are unfilled and unexalted, those that are needy. And I'm not trying to make any political statements. There are those of you in the room that have a sense that you are low. If that describes you, then let your song be like Mary's. Put your full hope in the Son of God for salvation. That's what Mary was doing. And rejoice. The coming reign of King Jesus is going to turn the world upside down. It is going to take what is low right now and overlooked and marginalized and it's going to lift it up. And it's going to take what is high right now and powerful and lower it down. That's the good news of the Magnificat. Now here's the tension that you might be feeling if this describes you, is you might say, but it's not here yet. Like I'm still waiting for it. In other words, you're saying, I believe in Jesus, but nothing has changed in my circumstances. I'm still overlooked. I'm still rejected. I'm still unwanted. I'm still ugly. I'm still the one that, that, that can't get past the, the, the ceiling that I face. You are just like Mary. That's good. You're just like her. When she wrote this song, her external circumstances had not changed either. Not yet. Did you catch that? She's singing the song. In fact, she's worse off at that moment than she was the month before. Because not only is she still poor, not only is she still a woman in Nazareth, she's now pregnant and she's not married. Her circumstances have gotten worse. Yet, she has put her faith in the promise of a coming king that will change everything. And she has rejoiced with hope while she waited. Rejoice with hope while she waited. That's how you make room in your heart. That's how you prepare him room. Right? Our Advent candle this morning, hope. And I hope you dialed in as that sweet kid was reading the definition of hope. That's what you need. That's what you're called to. That's what it looks like for you to prepare him room if you feel like you're on the outside looking in. Now, I want to talk about another audience. I know that doesn't describe many of us in the room. Many of us are much less needy and much more self-sufficient than Mary was. Many of us in the room have more resources, security, material comfort, cultural influence, political rights. None of those are inherently bad. But 
What would it look like for those of us that aren't on the bottom to prepare him room? It starts, I think, with an understanding that the core message of the gospel is that Jesus humbled himself for us, for us too. Okay, he became small. He became unexalted. Think about this. He was at the very top, right? The top of the top of the top. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter two, right? Jesus, who was himself God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself. Let your attitude be like Jesus Christ. Here Jesus is in Luke chapter one, a baby inside the womb of a poor Jewish girl. And he would grow up to go even lower than that, all the way to the cross, all the way to be nakedly bearing our shame, being scowled at and spit on, on our behalf. So following Jesus means at least in part, following him in this path of descent. It means actually believing what he said, that those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, how do we actually do that? I want to get practical. If you have power, if you have position, and you don't think you do, but you actually do. I mean, we're always saying, I don't have power. That person does. Uh, not so fast, my friends. You know, We've got more than we think, most of us in the room. We've got more security than we think. We've got more comfort. We've got more privilege than most of us think. If that describes you, the point of this text is not necessarily to rid yourself of those things. Not necessarily, but it might be to some degree. Okay, I'm going to come back to the not necessarily, if you can hold that tension with me for just a minute, and I want to talk about it might be to some degree. Um, listen, some of you may need to rid yourself of some things that are keeping you from being dependent and needy for salvation. That was Jesus' point to the rich young ruler. Right? The kid came to him and he's like, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, sell all you have and follow me. And he's like, I'm not doing that. Now, why did Jesus tell him that and not other people? Because he could look into the heart of that young man and he, could, he knew exactly what was keeping him from being needy. What was keeping him from receiving salvation, receiving a savior, receiving rescue was his own self-sufficiency that was embedded in his wealth and power in his position. Jesus says, give it up and grab onto something better. And the young man turns away. Now, it doesn't always mean that, but it does mean that sometimes. Uh, there are other examples in scripture of powerful and wealthy people who were humble. Think about David. Think about Moses, most humble man on earth as he was leading Israel. Think about Joseph, who was second in command over all of Egypt, but, but they tend to be the exception, not the rule. I have to be intellectually honest. My understanding of scripture, they're the exception, not the rule. But here's what they had in common, okay? They stewarded their position with great humility. That's what you have to do. If you're someone that's a little bit more on the top of society in various ways, you have to steward your position with great humility. Here's what that means. It means humbling your heart. It means following Jesus in the great descent Okay, you have to know that you are a bond slave like Mary, and that's a beautiful thing. In fact, if it bothers you to think of yourself as a bond slave, which is essentially just a servant, okay, if it bothers you to think of yourself as a servant, you have a heart problem. Following Jesus means using your resources the same way Jesus used his, which was in self giving love 
for the joy of other people. That's what we're called to. Those of us that are not on the bottom of society. That's what we're called to. That's following Jesus with all the literal and practical application that you can put on that. Here's another way to say it. Our souls need to become a little more like Mary's soul. Verse one, my soul exalts the Lord. Mary's song is a picture of Jesus invading the space of a humble heart. Here's what happens when God invades the space of a humble heart. That person, like Mary, begins to exalt the Lord, which is the best possible thing that could happen to you because it's what you were actually made for. Your primary purpose is not comfort. Your primary purpose is not success or wealth or anything like that. You may have been given those things to steward, but you were not made for them. You were made for a magnificat. You were made for your soul to exalt the Lord and to whatever degree those things are keeping you from being needy enough to receive the Savior and exalt God for his great work on the earth, then turn away from those things. And cry out. Cry out for help. That's the heart that God wants to create in us. Each week of this series, we're sharing with you a song that has been written, an original song based on these texts written by some songwriters who are part of our body. Some are part of our worship team. Others are just a part of our body. And, and I'm gonna go ahead and ask the band if they'd come out. We're gonna share another one with you today. By the way, if you missed last week's song, you <laughs> go listen to it. It's fantastic. Uh, we're gonna be posting these online each week with the message. So you can go on our website, find the page where the message is posted and you'll see these songs. You can download them if you'd like to. The reason we're doing this is to help the truth of the scripture make its way from our thoughts into our emotions and desires and choices. And music is just one of the ways that it happens, but it's a powerful way that that happens. I can't wait for you to hear and, and be sung over with this beautiful song. It's called When You Come, written by Luke Brown, Lindsay Mattingly, Shaley O'Neill. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we do not take it lightly that we are called to humble ourselves. And even in that, we recognize grace is needed. And so we cry out, Father, it's not in me to be a humble man because I resist neediness. And I believe I'm speaking on behalf of many in the body. So would you see fit, Father, even in this moment, as we engage in this song, would you see fit to move our hearts and transform our hearts to prepare him room? And for some in the room today, they may, for the very first time in their life, they may, they may have a cry out in, the, in, in, the, in, their, in their heart thoughts that would say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you. And if that's you in the room this morning, all it is is crying out for salvation and then putting your faith in the life of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf. And so I've, I pray for all of us, for those that for the first time are crying out in need, for those of us that once again need to cry out in need, that we would do that this morning in the name of Jesus.